Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. Would you bow with me in prayer? Gracious Lord, our Heavenly Father, we ask for your Spirit to give us understanding. We ask, Father, for your Spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds to understand and to apply your Word to our lives. We ask you, Father, to give us a fresh vision of the hope that is found in you. We ask you, O Lord, to to meet us exactly where we are, that we may become more like you. For, Father, if you do not condescend to us, Father, we are hopeless. We thank you, Father, that in your mercy and your grace, you speak clearly. So give us ears to hear. In the name of Jesus, amen. Derek Hamilton was 49 years old when he was released from prison. He had spent 21 years behind bars. It was around the 18th year of his imprisonment that the lawyers began to notice something. There was a, a discrepancy, some things in their case, that his case that just didn't sit right. So they began investigating. His case was reopened and it was discovered that Derek Hamilton was innocent of the murder for which he had been accused. So after 21 years of being wrongly incarcerated, he was finally released. He wrote about what that was like. He said, and I quote, The day I walked out, my wife, my nephew, and my son was in the car waiting for me. There was a church right around the corner. 
I would always listen to the bells ringing when I was in jail. I didn't even know where the church really was. But I would pray. I would pray when I would hear the bells. It was my only opportunity to pray at the same time people on the outside was praying. When I got out, that was one of the first things I wanted to do. Just go around and pray in that church. I went in and thanked God for my release. Going into that church, it was like being born again. In many ways, when I read this story, I realized you and I can empathize with Derek Hamilton. Not that we have ever been in prison, but because we know what it is to long for a day when things will be different. We know what it is to long for that day when we will be set free. We long for that day when we will be set free from the captivity of disease. We long for the day when we can be set free from the grief that follows death. We long for the day when we can experience true reconciliation and the pain that has been brought about by our sin is finally relieved. Now our challenge until we reach that day is not to lose hope. We need to hold on to the hope that a day is coming when our longings will be satisfied. I fear today that many believers, especially in America, where we have so many things that we are on the verge of losing hope and becoming a hopeless people even within the church. We need to return to the power that comes from hope. Because it is very easy for us to achieve the American dream and to realize that it is a nightmare that cannot fulfill the deepest longings of our soul. And every day I look around and I see people who see people who wonder what happened to what I was promised. I believed that once I got everything that my heart desired, then I would be happy. Why am I still unhappy? I look around and I see a society today that when we hold our cell phones in our hand, we are holding a computer with more power, more computing power than the computers that landed an astronaut on the moon. Why is it so hard for us to find a sense of awe in things anymore? That our hearts are not moved with the sense of, of, man, this is amazing. We are still longing for something that can fulfill our deepest need for awe and wonder. I look around and I see those whose backs are bent from the pain of life. And they wonder, when will redemption ever come? Believe me, I know. I know what it is to wait and to wait and to wait. And to pray with every breath, how long, O oh Lord? How long? And many of you, if you're deeply honest with yourself, you know that pain too. How long, O oh Lord? Will things ever be set right? And today, I want us to come to this passage to see the promised hope that God has given to us. Because Revelation 21, 1 through 8, tells us about a day that is coming. 
about a day when the discord of conflict will give way to the harmony of hope, to the day when the pain of judgment will become the pleasures of joy in God's presence, that coming day when the world will fade away by the light of God's glory and grace. Revelation 21, 1 through 8, serves as a thesis statement. It's the opening paragraph, as it were, of the paper that is to come in chapters 21 and 22. Verses 1 through 8 introduce us to the new creation, to the new heaven and the new earth. It introduces us to the new Jerusalem. And then in chapter 21, verses 9 through 21, we'll see next week a detailed description of new Jerusalem. In chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, we'll get a closer look at the new creation. So verses 1 through 8 simply set out, this is what will happen in a big picture. And then we dive deeply into the description of what that will be like. So these chapters, chapters 21 and 22, are the conclusion, the end. But isn't it good to know that as believers, when we come to the end, it is really just the beginning. Because what we find at the conclusion, what we find about this day that is coming, is that it is a day when God will recreate creation. Verse 1 begins with the description, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now that's a way of saying the totality of all that is. It's a way that we are used to speaking too. You use parts to represent the whole. In other words, if I was to get upset at somebody and I was to say, buddy, and the redneck in me come out, oh, it's there. And I was to say, I'm coming after you tooth and nail. You know what that's saying? I'm coming after you with everything I got. Well, when God says, I'm creating a new heaven and a new earth, he is saying all of creation. All of the cosmos is going to be recreated. And we see the reason why it must be recreated. The first earth, the first heaven, had passed away, destroyed, gone. Now this is not the only place this is described in the Scripture. In the New Testament, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, we read this, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. It will come a surprise, unexpected. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Now this begs the question, why is it that creation needs to be destroyed in order to be recreated? In other words, why is it that God has to go to such extremes to show there will be a new heaven and a new earth? Well, the answer is found in Romans 8, 19 through 22. And the answer is this. Because when Adam and Eve fell into sin, their sin not only impacted themselves, it impacted all of creation. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is personified as waiting for every believer to come to the point when they will be saved. Why does creation do that? For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That creation is in bondage to corruption even now. 
For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It's a way of saying that creation is fallen. Now we look around and this creation is beautiful. I am convinced, and no offense to anyone that is from any other place, but I am convinced there is no place more beautiful than East Tennessee. Can I get a witness? There we go. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, Pastor, you, you've never been to North, you know, upstate New York. I'm sure it's beautiful. But here's the point. As beautiful as this area is, it's still marred by sin. I'm convinced that with the beautiful sunsets that we have seen, we have never seen a truly glorious sunset like we will see in the day when the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth come. Because God is going to do a work in recreating that will go beyond anything we can imagine. Now, to help our imaginations, just to, to grasp this, I wanted to show you a picture. It's a picture of a place in Boston. This is a picture of the, new, or the Charles Street Jail in Boston. When it was built, it was known as the Paragon of Prisons. It was the model of what prison architecture should be. But by the 1960s, it had fallen into disrepair overcrowding, riots were taking place, the conditions were filthy, pigeon droppings were even coming in through skylights that had been built. The building was finally condemned in 1973. Now get this for a fact though, the building was condemned in 1973, the last inmate was transferred in 1990. There you go. Jail closed down. 17 years later, and $150 million later, the Charles Street Jail opened up as the Liberty Hotel. This place that was once a jail now has rooms. The smallest will cost you $320 a night. The suites, $5,500 a night. There are restaurants in there. It's a place of luxury. A former inmate of the Charles Street Jail arrived on the 40th anniversary of his imprisonment. He said, upon observing the, the renovation that had taken place, how could you take something that was so horrible and turn it into something of tremendous beauty? I just don't know. Church, that is exactly what God is going to do with this creation. He's going to take what has fallen and imprisoned and in bondage to corruption, that which is in decay, and He is going to take it. He is going to take what is ugly and make it beautiful. He is going to take what has been disfigured and mended, and He is going to take something that we look around and think, man, this is pretty good, and He is going to make it exponentially better and more beautiful because sin will be eradicated. But this is where it gets interesting. Look at the next phrase. The sea was no more. Now I find that curious. I don't know about you, but I personally like the ocean. And I hate to think of a new creation without the ocean. What about fish? Is this an area where Satan is going to be able to look at God and say, ha, you got the mountains, you got the plains, you got everything in between, but God, I got the oceans. I got the oceans. You couldn't redeem the oceans. I don't think that's the case at all. I firmly believe there is not one part of creation that is going to be left unredeemed by God. So what is meant when we find out the sea was no more? Now keep in mind that throughout the book of Revelation and in much apocalyptic literature, the sea represents that which is unpredictable and destructive in nature. The sea represents that which is unpredictable, destructive, and chaos. 
Now, if you have ever spent time at the ocean, if you have ever waded out in the ocean, you know exactly what that means. How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hands, have been to the ocean and you walk in? It's calm. The waves aren't that rough. I'm going to wade in. And you wade in and you turn around to look back at the hotel and the sea and your friends and you start waving. And it's at that moment a rogue tsunami comes and whaps you in the back of the head. And before you know it, you're eating sand. The sea is tumultuous and unpredictable and chaotic. And when we find out there is no more sea, it is a way of saying that chaos is no more. The turmoil brought about by the sea is gone. I would remind you that earlier in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 13, when the beast arrives on the scene, the beast who represents that, that rebellion against God, where does he come from? He rises up out of the sea. So listen, there's no more rebellion, no more chaos. The sea represents evil and its nefarious manifestations. And it says it will be no more. And then in verse 2, we are introduced to the city of New Jerusalem, the holy city coming down out of heaven. Now we're faced with a similar question. Why New Jerusalem? I mean, what, what's going on here that God says, I need to come. Why not reclaim the, the old Jerusalem? Why not do that? Why is there a new one? Well, keep in mind how Revelation portrays Jerusalem. Chapter 11, Jerusalem is the place where the church is opposed. Jerusalem fights against the church. In chapters 11, 16, and 17, Jerusalem joins Babylon in its idolatrous rebellion against God. Jerusalem on earth came to represent rebellion against God. You could even argue it represents religious systems that once stood for God but then stand against God. But the new Jerusalem represents the dwelling place of God and His people. Now next week when we dive into verses 19 through 27 what we're going to see is that the new Jerusalem is shaped like a cube that's because it represents the holy of holies the dwelling place of God himself so when it says the new Jerusalem comes down as a bride adorned for her husband it's picturing the dwelling place of God God himself coming to dwell with his people in fullness ready for that intimate union now because sin, the presence of sin, has been wiped away. And at this point, there is no more of a sense of God up there and humanity down here. Now there is a unified dwelling and presence of God with His people. And here's the result of that. On that coming day, God will reside with the redeemed. Verses 3 and 4. He says, Now this loud voice from the throne, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Now this is the dwelling place of God that represents the presence of God. And the language is both beautiful and powerful. This term dwelling place and the, word, the verb dwell is pregnant with meaning. The Greek goes back to the idea of tabernacle. Now a tabernacle was a large tent. It was used in the Old Testament for Israel when they were in their wilderness wanderings where the tabernacle would be at the center of the camp to say God is in the middle of his camp. A form of the word for tabernacle was the Shekinah glory of God. 
Now, if you're not familiar with the Shekinah glory of God, I encourage you to go back and read through 2 Chronicles 6, 7, and 8, and 2 Kings 8, because the Shekinah glory of God occurred, came about when they were dedicating the temple. And the glory of God filled the temple with a luminous, <coughs> excuse me, a luminous cloud that was so powerful, so weighty with the glory of God, that the priest could not stand and minister in its presence. But I am convinced that the greatest use of this idea of dwelling place is in John chapter 1, where we are told that Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among the people of the earth. What that means is that Jesus was the beginning of this promise being fulfilled. Jesus was God tabernacling with his people. So as the people were with Jesus, they were with God. God was tabernacling in the flesh of Jesus. And now it comes to the fruition where God himself is in and among and with his people. Now, God dwells with us now in the Holy Spirit. But because of the presence of sin, his presence is not fully what it will be. Now, once again... To help us to wrap our imaginations around this, picture this with me. Some of you are, are my age and older, and you can remember the days when the newest TV was the size of a Volkswagen. Okay, it had a brown console around it. See, that's what I miss. TVs today, they're so skinny, you can't sit ceramic figurines on top of them anymore. I don't think our culture's better off for that. And it would be this huge TV. But the early ones were just still black and white, no matter what channel. And if the weather was good and the antenna was turned just right and you had enough aluminum foil, you got four channels. Okay, now you still had TV. TV was there. But it's black and white. It's fuzzy, but it's there. Now, fast forward to now. 70-inch screen, LCD, LED, MHP, BBQ, high-definition, surround sound. Now, both, both are TVs, right? Right, they are, by definition. They're both TVs, but one is black and white. It's fuzzy. It's not what it is. But now, we got grass so green, I feel like I need to cut it. So it is with the presence of God. Now, because of the presence of sin, it's not what it will be on that day when He comes and dwells with us in its high-definition presence of God. It's surround sound presence of God. It is being fully in His glory. And this moment that is predicted here is the fulfillment of a promise that stretches back millennia. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, 11 and 12, God said, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. That is a common refrain throughout all the prophets in Exodus, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. It is the hope of the believer, the glory we desire, the beauty we long for. His presence is the joy we desire. Because at that moment, look at the, the accompanying promise. Verse 4. He'll wipe away every tear. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. The former things are gone. No more hospital beds. People in the medical profession... 
I hate to break this to you, you will be out of a job in the new creation. Funeral homes, they will become fun houses. Cemeteries, unheard of. Hospital beds, gone forever. No more. The grief we feel now will be met by a joy that is exponentially greater than our sadness. And church, that is the hope that sustains us and transforms us. People will argue, Pastor, you shouldn't preach that much on heaven because it will make people of no earthly good. I would argue the contrary. We need the hope of heaven in order to be effective here so we don't lose heart. Too many believers have lost heart, undone by trials and tribulations and struggles and the path that our culture is on. We throw up our hands. Don't do that. In fact, back in 2 Peter, I feel like I'm saying back at the ranch, back at 2 Peter 3.11, he says, since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? You see, verses 5 through 8, I believe, move to an application. Here's the glorious promise, the new heaven, the new earth. God dwells with his people in high definition. But here is what you are to do. Because of these promises, trust him no matter how things look here. Notice in verse 5, there's a change of tense. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. It's not, I will make, I am making. In other words, God's act of redemption is at work now. Making refers to God's creative activity. So that in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. God is at work now, making within each believer a taste, a trailer for, an appetizer of what is to be church that's our responsibility you see the world around us is looking for joy the church is to be an, an embassy for the coming kingdom to say here's what that joy is like the world around us is looking for peace we should be that embassy that says this is what peace looks like the world around us is wondering, what is the answer for the, the racial and ethnic strife that is tearing our nation apart? As the church, we should be at the forefront saying, we are one people united by the grace of God, regardless of color, ethnicity, regardless of economic status. We should say, this is what the kingdom looks like. That's why Believing in the kingdom to come does not lead us into passivity. It should move us into action because we represent the kingdom with confidence that it will be done. Look at what he says in verse 6. It is done. What? Everything. This is a prophetic tense saying it is as good as done. How can we know that? He says I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is nothing outside of God's control in history. So we act with confidence being a light in a dark world because we know God will accomplish his purpose because he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who says it is done. And notice he has supplied what we need to fulfill that. 
to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now this is not just a promise for the future. Now we can, the argument could be made, yes, he's saying you're thirsty here, your thirst will be slaked that day in the kingdom. And I think that's true. But I think he's also saying here and now, if you are thirsty, come to him. Not just in a future sense, but now. Do you know physical dehydration is a very serious issue? If there is a drop of 1.5% of water in the body, it can lead to mild, mild dehydration. You know what mild dehydration looks like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Mild dehydration messes with your focus, your alertness, and your short-term memory. That's mild. Excessive dehydration, you stop sweating, your blood thickens, your cholesterol increases, and your heart works harder, leading to a chance of cardiac arrest. Physical dehydration is horrible. But you know, we ignore spiritual dehydration when we are not drinking of the Spirit of God. Do you know memory loss occurs? When we don't drink of the things of God, our minds don't function as they ought to. We don't think after the thoughts of God. Did you know when we are spiritually dehydrated, not drinking of God's Word, our heart, our desires begin to change, and our spiritual life begins to die. So God is saying, don't let that happen. As this world pressures you, come even more to the fountain to drink. Drink in the Word. Drink in prayer. Quench your thirst on the things of God. And because there is a day coming, stand firm in the faith. Verses 7 through 8 give a promise and a warning. Stand firm because to the one who conquers has the heritage, I will be his God. Now remember, Revelation is written to encourage the church not to give in to persecution and not to become comfortable in pleasure. You conquer by standing firm. And look at the promise. If you stand firm, he says, I will be his God. I'll be your God. You will be my son. Now think about this for a moment. If God says, here's your reward. Now get, this is what the reward is. God. He doesn't say bigger mansion. He doesn't say crown of gold. He says, your reward is God. If God is our reward, think of how great being with Him, knowing Him, is. If knowing God is the reward for losing all of your possessions because you follow Christ, doesn't that mean God is greater than our possessions? If knowing God is greater than losing status, in other words, if you are a Christian, you don't get promoted at work, you are ostracized, then how much greater is God than any status the world can convey upon us? If knowing God is the reward for losing our lives in martyrdom, then God must be greater than our lives here. Because a reward that is not greater than something you already have is no reward at all. If God is not greater than what you already have, that's not a reward. But if He says, here's, here's what you get, if you stand firm, it's me! Then how glorious He is! And just as wonderful as the reward is, the recompense for rebellion is equally horrible. In verse 8, we find out that it is the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Hell. 
And verse 8 lists the sins. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of sins by any means. But what it is, it is a summary list of the sins highlighted in Revelation. The cowardly. Those who refuse to name Christ because they're afraid. The faithless. The believer who says, I never really believed and walked away. The detestable. That's the abhorrent sinner. There's no question about it. Murderers, those who martyr Christians, the sexually immoral, it's the word pornea. Those who fall into sexual sin, whether it be of the eye or, or actions. Sorcerers, where, where does that fit in? Remember, Ephesians, I'm sorry, Revelation 2 is written to the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus was in a culture that highlighted sorcery and magic as a way to control spiritual entities. Behind sorcery is the pride that says, if I do the right thing, I can control spiritual beings. And that is sheer folly. And he says, if you fall into that type of thinking, as in Ephesus, you are denying the sovereignty of God. Idolaters, liars. He says, those who reject the gospel will find themselves eternally punished by God. Now, if we pause for a moment, we'll realize that each of us fit on that list in some way. For none of us have been the men or the women that we know we ought to be. But here's some good news. The new creation, the new Jerusalem, is not reserved for those who have never sinned. It's reserved for those who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Look over to chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who washed their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they might enter the city by the gates. The way to get into the city is faith in Jesus Christ. I want to, to end with this thought. This is something that I heard about six years ago and it has stuck with me ever since. John 14, Jesus said to the disciples, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am you may be. Now, I've preached that text at funerals. And I've drawn this picture of Jesus as the carpenter up in heaven preparing a house. I've come to believe that's the wrong interpretation of that. When Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, where was he about to go? The cross. Jesus prepared the place for us when he died upon Calvary. And because he died upon Calvary and rose again, we can be with him. We can begin to experience the promise recorded here. Do you know him? Have you placed your faith in him? Given him your allegiance? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. I want to ask Nathan to join me in the front. Both Nathan and I are here this morning that if you need to respond in some way, 
If you have a question about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, or if maybe God has just spoken to your imagination as these pictures have been drawn, and you're saying, I don't want to miss that. Understand, the way has been prepared by Jesus' death and resurrection. If you have questions about that, when we stand and begin to sing, I invite you to come forward. To take either me or Nathan by the hand. We will not embarrass you. What we may do, we may actually just step out into one of the Sunday school rooms. Just to talk and explain a little bit more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you just need to pray this morning. Maybe you want to grab a brother or sister in the faith by the hand and come to this kneeling bench and say, Father, strengthen me. I've lost hope. I'm going to lead us in a prayer now. And at the conclusion of it, we will stand together. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is true. Thank you that this world is not the final chapter. Thank you there's more to be written than we could ever imagine. There's more glory to behold than we could ever take in. Thank you, O Lord. And draw us unto you in Jesus' name. Amen.